first reading is from Joshua chapter 9, and the second reading will be from Psalm 2. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings of the hill country in the western foothills and along the east entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, they came together to war, wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the king, two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Estroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and mouldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty with them and let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Now over to Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebuked them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will give the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. 
Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. One, I pray, and then we'll switch our minds to God's word. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we can reflect on your word, seek to be um, transformed by it. Uh, Joshua is a book of great and amazing challenge, and so we pray that you'll help us uh, to think about it well and to uh, see how what happened so long ago actually speaks into our life today because of Jesus. Amen. Now, it might just be me, but does anyone like the Jack Ryan movies, you know, Tom Clancy and, and Jack Ryan? Yeah, Peter, we're on board. Anyone else? Yeah, they're good, right? They're, they're pretty good. I really love them. Um, I've watched lots, lots, I think I've seen all of them. And a new series has come out um, on, um, I think it's Amazon Prime, so I got the free subscription so I could watch it. And, um, and I watched this new one with Jack Ryan and the new guy who's doing it. It's a TV show, and I think it works better as a TV sh- a series of movies. And it's fantastic about a CIA analyst who's supposed to just be behind a desk who ends up becoming super cool and an action hero. You know, Harrison Ford was the first one and um, Ben Affleck. And, and now in this series, in every one of them, like many movies actually, what happens is there is some other nation or terrorist now taking a stand against America and trying to take America down. And this CIA analyst who is... Um, the hero of the story is involved and finds himself in situations where he is going to save the day. Fantastic. And, but the thing is, as it plays out, you, you're watching it and you're thinking, is this bomb going to go off? I think in one of them, a whole you know, football stadium blew up one time. Um, is it going to go off? Are they going to stop them before the biological warfare is actually going to take place? How many people are actually going to die? Who is going to win this? Are the terrorists going to win? Is this other nation going to win? How, who's going to catch them and how? It's a battle. All of them are like this drawn out uh, battle as nations are taking stand against other nations. The story of Joshua is now the people are in the promised land is about nations battling against God taking them to their stand against him. And as, as we look at this today, it's really worthwhile us considering it because what we're drawn into is whose side of the battle are we on when it comes to God? And what does that look like for us? And so whether we're a follower of Jesus or we're wondering what this all means... My goal today is that we have greater clarity on why being on God's side is absolutely worth it. So that's where we're heading. And I thought seeing we're, you know, a few weeks in uh, to the series now, it's worthwhile kind of helping us catch up on what's happening, Joshua, and what are the big ideas that took place, have taken place. Um, and so this book in Joshua... All those years back is a big deal. 
for God's people Israel. It's because God had initially given, I'm hoping this time, just so you know those that have been here previous weeks, I'm hoping it's going to happen this week. God made really, really big promises to Abraham for his people. And those promises can be summarized in one word. Beautiful. If you don't know what just happened, then that's okay. I've been trying to convince everyone that God's promises, that the whole Bible traces out, can be summarized with three letters. Lob, L-O-B. That is, God promised that his people are going to have a land to dwell in. And it's going to be a land where he will be with them. And these people are going to have many offspring. They are going to be numerous. He tells Abraham, look at the stars and you can't even count them and this is your people. My people are going to be this big. And then they're going to be blessed and be a blessing to the other nations. These big promises they have. And Joshua is such an important book, particularly because of the L part of Lob. Because God is now saying, you're going to get to go into this land I'm promising you. And we've seen in the story that they have. They've gone into the land through extraordinary means and we've discovered something quite significant about God. He is holy. And that is really important for us wrestling with all of the battles and everything that's going on is that God is so unique, so different. He is so other and so good and right that he can't be near anything that's not. And so when the people amazingly go into the promised land through the River Jordan, echoing how they walk through um, uh, escape from Egypt in, in, the, in the great uh, walking through the Dead Sea, they do it again. And God's holiness goes before them in the ark to make that happen. And then they destroy the first city that they destroy, Jericho. It kind of happens in a weird way. They walk around it a few times and then the walls fall down and they walk in and they destroy them. And you think, this is God doing it. And God is holy. And we've discovered that his people then need to be holy. God's promised to be with them. God can't be around wickedness. And so the people need to be holy. And God sets up a way to do that. And the people say, yep, that's a good thing. We'll do that. And then last week we discovered, right at the, go- right at the beginning of being in the land, they got it really, really wrong. And the challenge was, God's people can't be okay with sin. And they've got to deal with it. God does not accept wickedness. And so that's why all these nations that we've been wrestling with in our mind, how is, why is this happening? He actually has, has let them, um, in his providence for centuries, continue on in their wickedness. But he does not accept wickedness and the consequences are now coming to pass. We've seen at every point in the story, as in every book of the Bible, God is trustworthy. He says something and it happens. And the last big idea that I think is a really important thread to hold it all together. God wants people to turn to him. And that little story of Rahab, who was not an Israelite, who was part of the nations to be destroyed, decided to turn back to God, to turn to his people, and she was rescued. And that story continues to highlight, while God does not accept wickedness, there is an offer to come back to him. And so that's where we've been in the story. Now the people are in the land, they've, they've taken out two cities, Jericho and Ai. What's going to happen in the story next? Well, 
It'd be helpful to have uh, chapter 9 open in, in front of you. Um, I've got a few other uh, passages to look at and, and they'll be up on the screen, but keep chapter 9 in front of you. Because we see, now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea as far as Lebanon, verse 2, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. See, the first point is in your own there. What, the nations have great hostility towards God. They rise up to God and his people. They're standing together in opposition to God and his people. It really does echo the way the book of Psalms is introduced in the second part of its introduction in, in uh, chapter 2. It's a theme that's traced out throughout Israel's whole history that they have a psalm about it, a, a song, a, a, a piece of poetry which highlights that people rise up against God. And we see that in Psalm 2, this theme play out. What we're reading in chapter 9 is what the people, uh, a psalm that they had. Look at Psalm 2 verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. That is, we don't want to do what God wants. We want to do what we want. This is not unfamiliar territory. Nations rising up against God's way. It wasn't unfamiliar to Jesus. His whole ministry, as we trace it through, was a ministry of those wanting to take him down. And even from within, as the Pharisees and the other religious leaders plotted to kill him. Said that he was a blasphemer. There is no doubt that in today, if we did any investigation into what's actually happening in the world around us, in, in the, particularly in the non-Western world, Many nations rise up against Christianity and want to destroy it. That is actually just a fact. It's happening. Many, many people over the last centuries, even today, are dying because they belong to God. It's not like that quite in Australia, is it? But what it is like is that people don't want Jesus to be Lord of their life. And if you say to someone, Jesus is Lord of your life and there's judgment if you don't, then the hostility comes. And so we either can retreat, not speak, not well, actually, what we could do is we could just water it down a bit. You know what you can do? Just talk about how Jesus is loving and not talk about the fact that actually, if you reject him, he doesn't like it. We'll just ignore that bit, even though he said it so much. Joshua helps us wrestle with this. It helps us see how God wants us to think about who he is. We see you've got the nations, all hostile, beautifully representing Psalm 2, conspiring against, coming together. That's what happens. And it kind of makes sense, I reckon, 
as we look at the Canaanite response. It makes sense. They've seen what happened in Jericho. They've seen what happened in Ai. And you know what? They know that they're going to be coming for them. And so you can imagine them thinking, these kings and the masterminds, if we gather together and outnumber them, we should be able to take these unimpressive fighters down because the Israelites did not look that impressive. It was their God that was impressive. It, may, it kind of, you can see how it's logical. But remember our responses earlier? Chapter 2, verse um, 11 and 13. Rahab didn't think that way, as I've already mentioned. Um, she, we read in chapter 2, When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. And she goes on to say, I, 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 um, I want to um, be saved by you, essentially. But the people were melting in fear. In the kings in chapter 5 verse 1 are melting in fear. They see it and they're melting in fear of it because they knew actually what has been going on. It's just not normal. You don't have people just walking through a river and opening up the way it does. You don't have walls just falling down because they shout out because their gods told them to and to be wiped out. It just does not happen this way. You see, what kind of seems logical is actually profoundly ridiculous, stupid, foolish. Because they've seen what's already happened and who's they should see who's behind it and they've responded by going, well, we'll take that on. But in this story, there's another response, isn't there? The Gibeonites, they had the same problem. They just read and take on board what they chose to do. It's kind of pretty funny. <laughs> Don't know if you picked it up when we read it. Verse 3 of chapter 9. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All their bread of their uh, food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. Kind of, what are you going to do when nations are going to uh, take you down? Let's put on some really, really old clothes and have mouldy bread. That will work. We'll go to them looking completely helpless. It, it's kind of let's let's get our um, our old sacks and old wine skins. It, it's a bizarre option, but it's the exact opposite to all the other nations. You see what they've done? The other nations have gone. Let's rally up against God. The Gibeonites have not done that. They've done the opposite. They lied, and it was dodgy means, but they did not think that they could take down the Israelites and their God. In verse 9, they said, Your servants have come from a very far distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. Hmm, not so much true, but... For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. Uh, and he goes on, and they go on. 
they knew that they could not stand against Israel and their God. And they also knew that Israel had a way of dealing. You can see the way they've done it, that they actually kind of knew how Israel was supposed to relate to other nations. In Deuteronomy, up on the screen, we see um, in chapter verse 18 and 20, uh, or verse 10, sorry, when you march up to attack a city, make it its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, livestock and everything else in, in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. And then this is how you are to treat all the cities that are a distance from you and do not belong to nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. They knew that God's people um, needed to treat you with those at a distance and so they lied about that. And they knew that they could not take them down. It worked out well for the Gibeonites. And Joshua did something very interesting. Because why weren't they to interact with all the other nations? Why do you reckon it was? What are the other nations going to do that's so disastrous for God's people? They would introduce their ways of following God. They, what they would do is God says to them, if you let other nations just do... Um, in part of your culture, uh, follow their pagan rituals, you will, you will be weak and you will start following their ways and you will, you will um, uh, abandon me, the holy God. So when they had this treaty with Gibeon, which they kept, look what Joshua did in verse 27. Have a look at it here. In, verse, uh, in chapter 9, verse 27, we read, from verse 26, Joshua saved them from the Israelites. Uh, Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they do to this day. So that wasn't just Joshua trying to give them a job. That was Joshua being very wise as a leader thinking that they will now be part of our community and the way that we relate to God. And he's given them a job that's integral to the altar of the Lord to highlight that. And so Gibeon was rescued. It's a story of salvation and judgment. So not only Rahab um, highlights that, the Gibeonites do in their very bizarre, very odd way. It's an intriguing, intriguing story to wrestle with. Because what plays out in the rest of the, the drama in these, in these chapters is God, we find out it's God's battle. We find out that God is the one in charge and the kings, the other kings want to rise up against him. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its kings as he has done to Jericho and its king. 
and the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies, he and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than I and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to the other kings that are listed there. And then in verse 4, come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. And they go up and attack. They're rising up still to attack and it doesn't work. Not to give the story away, it's just we know that's going to happen. But what happens in the drama is we see very clearly it's God's battle. Have a look at verse 8, 10, 11. I'll show you, I'll just highlight them. Verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, I've given them into your hands. Verse 10, then the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. Verse 11, Uh, The Lord hurled large hailstones. And then, in a mind-boggingly, I can't say that word, amazing, just bizarre moment. (laughs) I've done it for a while. There you go, you can write that one on the list, Carola. Yeah, you got it? Good. Um, um, This amazing story of how God did something totally out of the order of things to show he's in charge. Verse 12, on that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, sun sends still over Gibeon and you, moon, over the valleys of Ajalon. Now, (laughs) we don't know why he'd come to that conclusion and how he thought of that. Certainly, if I was there, I'd be looking at him thinking, what are you doing? It's a bizarre thing to say. But God who's in control of all things, even the way things work and the order of all things. Verse 13, the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. God's battle, nothing is going to thwart him. The people win because God is fighting for them. Verse 14, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. We see very clearly what God is doing. What actually transpires is quite disturbing. The kings are brought before Joshua and there's great brutality. I think why that brutality is there is that while it's still perplexing and disturbing, what it highlights and why it's supposed to confront us is not because God is bad, but because it highlights what we've been seeing through Joshua, that before a holy God, wickedness cannot stand. And it really highlights that and brings that out. And so what happens in the rest of the chapters is comprehensive victory. Chapter 10 is the south being destroyed. Chapter 11 is the north being destroyed. Chapter 12 highlights that all the kings that took their stand against God, 31 of them, are wiped out completely, except for Gibeon. And so in chapter 11, verse 23, we read, Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the, Lord, then the land had rest from war. You see, God is in charge. What do we make of what's taken place? In your outline it says, is God in a battle today? We're going to get to that point later. I just want to ask the question, 
What do we make of the responses of the two nations? You see, there's only one that makes sense and it's the weird one. But what we need to realise is that all of us have to decide, do we want to be on God's side or not? You see, the Gibeonites, while we don't, um, their means aren't what we should recommend and follow, just so you know, don't read it and think, oh, excellent. If if I'm going to get a good result with God, I can lie. (laughs) It's like, it's not, that's not, that's not the message. That was not uh, the right thing. But the dealing with what, uh, what decision you need to make before God is what we see. Stand against him or don't stand against him. To face his wrath or to accept his salvation. You see, Jesus came not to destroy. Jesus came with a battle to win, but he came not to let everyone know, I'm going to wipe you all out. He came to say, as we saw in the Lord's Supper, he came as a ransom for many. That his battle victory was by being a servant. It's completely upside down. It doesn't make sense, but that's what Jesus did. All of this Old Testament story pointing to the actual ultimate land forever, the eternal kingdom with God, is pointing to the fact that Jesus does it now the other way around completely. And so that's what we want to wrestle with as we finish. God's battle or mission and us today. And I think we need to understand what the battle is. It's not us looking at nations and thinking we need to go to war. It's a battle against sin and the devil. When Jesus got going in his ministry after he was a kid and grew up, and uh, what did he do? He went into the desert and dealt with Satan. And it introduces the idea that it's going to be Satan's kingdom or Jesus' kingdom. They're the two options. Jesus' ministry starts with God saying, his father saying, he is my son. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 15, we understand the battle, I think, in a different kind of way. Mark chapter 1, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water. He saw heaven being tore open and the spirit descending on him like, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son, whom I love, who you, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Psalm 2, the son is the one who's loved, the son is the one who rules, the son is the one to be kissed. Jesus comes, the father ordains him, and we read on and we see what does Jesus do next in Mark, who Mark likes to quickly go on and say the next thing. Is it up there? At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. You see, what happens is his battle starts by him meeting his foe. And in Mark's Gospel, we just highlighted it. In Luke and Matthew, they highlight what happens in this temptation where Satan says, sin, basically, reject your father, follow me. There's two sides. There's my way or your way. 
And Jesus goes and highlights at the beginning of his ministry, this is what it's all about, me showing you that Satan has no power, I am the Lord of all and I will triumph as he completely rejects him. And so then what is it about? What's the battle for? Well, we read in Mark, the very next thing he says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. See, the battle that Jesus came for was to bring in God's kingdom. The ultimate L of lob is God's eternal kingdom where his people live and reign forever with him. And he doesn't do that by telling us you're all destroyed destroyed he says the kingdom of god is near so don't be destroyed repent i am here and i'm saying you can have it what's the battle about it's a battle about when god is saying i actually want my enemies to become on my side and for any of us here that is what god is saying to you today he does not want you to worry about whether you're good enough for him because he does not care he knows you're not good enough none of us are no matter how much you think you've mucked up your life, he is saying, I have come to bring you into my kingdom. Turn to me, trust in me. And you have kissed the sun. If you're not sure where you are with God, that I hope you're here today, you can be clear on. What God is saying is, It can be broken down simply while there's lots to wrestle with. I am saying, I want you to be with me and I'm going to die for you to do it. Just acknowledge how you've rejected me, trust in me, and from this point on, you are forgiven, you are with me. And the shackles are gone. The battle that is God's is extraordinary. Putting on some old wineskins and eating mouldy bread isn't strange. When we look at the marvellous strangeness and paradox that the greatest battle and victory of all time was by Jesus laying down his life. Don't go away today if you haven't got that clear at least what that means. Talk to someone. More, I hope you think that I would love to chat to you about it, but if you've got a friend here and you want to chat to them about it, do that. And even more so today, realise you can actually say, yes, God, I'm now on your side. And for all of us, understand what tools we need to use in this battle. Ephesians chapter 6, which we've already looked at Ephesians this year, haven't we? Right at the end there, Ephesians chapter 6. Um, it should be up on the screen, I think. But the screen's died, that's all right, let me read it to you. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That sounds very Joshua like, doesn't it? Be strong and courageous. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. This is not some kind of now where we need to go into all kinds of exorcisms and all kind of uh, praying our demons because the armour of God is quite simply the gospel and everything that it belongs to. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what do you do? Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up a shield of faith which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What tools do we take into battle? God is the answer. Do you notice that? All of those things is what we know about God, what he's done for us. We don't need any extra things. We just need the gospel, the word of God, the truth that it entails. And so we don't water it down. You know how we, we can be tempted when we're being challenged to water down the gospel? But then we've lost our only tool. Jesus is God. Jesus says, you follow me, you live and have life. You don't, you don't have life. The consequences are clear. If we don't say that, we're rejecting what we've been given. And we can use it because we've got nothing to be afraid of. You see, the uniqueness of this battle, as we're nearing the end, is because it's very different, isn't it? Jesus wins by laying down his life and lets his enemies win. They thought they won at least, didn't they? The people of his kingdom are not brought in by conquest, they are brought in by giving life and conquering death. It's a unique battle and that's how we are to see it. And it's unique and it's timing because it's eternal. It's an eternal kingdom. We need to lastly understand God has already won. See, it's not like Jack Ryan or any other battle that's actually taking place in the real world where we don't know who's going to win. Is Australia going to be fully free forever? We'd like to think so, but maybe it won't. Will America be the superpower uh, forever? Well, unless Jesus returns soon, probably not. How many great superpowers have come and gone? Quite a few. But Jesus has already won. We're not looking into the future and seeing if he'll win. We know he's already won. He came, he showed who he was fighting, did not, did not fall to temptation. He lived a perfect life where he did not reject his father in any way. He gave up his life, he conquered death and now he's reigning into all eternity in heaven. That is what we have as God's people. We struggle to battle when we forget that the battle is won. We struggle when we think, I need to do this to guarantee something that Jesus has already resolved, your life with him. Jesus is the king who's reigning forever. 
The Lord mocks and laughs at any attempt to overthrow him in Psalm 2. And that is because Jesus is on the throne. Decide today to follow him. Let's finish with a beautiful picture of Jesus on the throne in Revelation. John, he saw into heaven and he said, I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can have life with you because what Jesus has done, the battle is won. Remind us of that, Lord. Jesus has done everything we need. And so as we go into the battle that is already won, help us to go forth strong and courageous with your word that we do not shrink back from. We pray we all may turn and trust in you this day. Amen.